0: And it was kind of a fascinating discovery to see that people are that fascinated with themselves that they wanna not only post a picture, but they wanna come back 27 minutes later and see if anybody commented on that picture they posted. Thank you for tuning back into
1: another segment of Demo Day. In this segment, Brett Brewer explains what caused Myspace's rapid rise to success and also tells us the story of the birth of Crosscut Ventures. Without further ado, let's get into Demo Day. you know, when I was researching, I had no idea that you had anything to do with MySpace. And certainly talking about the word intermix doesn't lend itself to MySpace, but MySpace is, you know, among, you know, Friendster and, uh, is it, was it Friendster or Friendfeed? One, one Friendster. Of the, Friendster, like Friendster, you know, it was the first major, major, major success. How did that story come into play? Like, was it you and a couple of team members that came up with the idea, was it part of the acquisitions that you were doing? Like, how did uh, MySpace even come to fruition from the very beginning?
0: Yeah. So it's a slightly longer story, but I'll tell it quickly. But mm-hmm. Intermix at that moment in time is a fairly acquisitive company. Okay. Right? We learned through acquiring the original e-commerce business of CD Universe, how we could skip some steps and really get super talented teams fast. Okay. So in, um, 2001, we bought a business called response base and response base was started by Chris DeWolf, Josh Berman, Aber, Colin, and eventually Tom Anderson really worked there. But those five individuals, Tom, Tom exactly. <laughs> those five individuals, um, ran response base. We bought the business. It was a some amount of cash up front, and then a two year earnout. Okay. Fast forward those two years. The two years ends in early two thousand three. We have response based essentially direct marketing e commerce products, but our own e commerce products. Okay. Not what what the original e commerce business did, which was selling other people's commodity goods. So we had learned enough to know we got to be selling stuff that is proprietary to us. And we need to be selling things with really high margin. Okay, which is response based. The same time within the Intermix umbrella is Adam Goldenberg, who's now the CEO of Fabletics and Savage, an incredibly talented individual. My old roommate and, and worked at Intermix from the start. He's running. The bigger e commerce division within Intermix. So okay. at the end of that earnout, it no longer made sense to have two separate, kind of separate, almost competing in certain cases. So we made the decision, which was an easy one guys, let's fold in the response based e commerce division underneath Adam and let's go after a really big category. We had the advantage at Intermix by then that we were launching and starting sites on a relatively regular basis. So we had a dating site called Cupid Junction. Oh, wow. We had a fitness site called Fitness Heaven. We had, you know, we probably had 15 to 20 active media sites that either were subscription or just content that were supported through ads. But we launched them relatively quickly with the response-based team. Again, Chris and Josh and Tom and Aber, they're brilliant. And and I had seen it for two years. And so it was a great time to say, guys, let's take a deep breath and let's go after something big. Wow. Like we have that advantage, right? And this is, again, there's very, compared to today's competitive landscape, there are very few players, but... But we are one of the players, certainly in L.A. And, and really around the country, that can do cutting-edge things. Friendster existed. Jonathan Abram was the CEO. He's still a good friend. And but so we could see that that business might work, but Friendster was very uncool. Yeah, yeah. And they were having technical problems. So the idea, quite simply, that, that Chris and Josh and, and, and team Aber came up with is, let's go after the social media space Let's be cool, though, Yep. and let's really incorporate music, and let's give a lot of control to the individual user. And with that, we launched MySpace, which the tagline, as you may remember, was a place for friends. And we launched with an inter-office promotion inside Intermix. We had about 250 employees at the time. I actually sent an email to everybody inside the company that just said, we're launching a new site next Friday. It's called MySpace, a place for friends The employee with the most amount of friends at the end of the month will get $250, second place $150, third place $50. Um, The winner was my good friend Sheila, who worked at Intermix and since then married Marco Alardi. And um, she won, and she's very proud of winning, but she won with maybe like 83 friends. Wow. And just that little start, because they were primarily in LA, even in that first two to three weeks, we saw... More traction than we expected to see. Mm -hmm. And more importantly than the number of people that were interacting with MySpace was the amount of time that they were spending on the site and how often they were coming back to the Mm. site. Because we had dating sites, casual game sites was a very big category for us. You knew baseline numbers. We knew baseline numbers. And baseline numbers were people come back to sites one to two times a week and they look at five to seven page views and they spend eight to ten minutes max. Period. End of discussion. It didn't matter what it was. You could have the best sports content site. You could have the best news site. It was really hard to get anything much better than that. Even with two, three, four thousand 4,000 users total on MySpace, users were coming back four to six times a day. Mm. They were looking at 10 to 15 page views, and they were spending 14 minutes every single time they came back. And so we really sat back and said, what is going on here? Like, what are these... People doing, and now we all know exactly how the world has evolved. But this was the first aha moment where we could see that people were essentially checking in on themselves. They building were profiles, yeah. Well, but but also, I would, I was putting a comment on your picture. I was coming back to see if you commented on my comment. Totally, right? Yeah. That now we all know people do that. Yeah. But this is again early two thousand three, and it was kind of a fascinating discovery. To see that people are that fascinated with themselves that they want to not only post a picture, but they want to come back 27 minutes later and see if anybody commented on that picture they posted. So we did just what any any great business would do or decent business would do, which is say, wow, this is exceptional. We want to put all our best resources on this. We want to protect this. We want to fund this. We want to give it everything we can this is our chance to build something really, really creative and amazing. And I give a ton of credit always to 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 Chris and Josh and Tom and Aber and Colin. Like th- those five guys were really visionaries around the social networking social networking space. And Tom, as is often repeated, ended up being the profile and the picture and became everybody's friend, which was a way where we could make it easy to search and connect with people you didn't know. Yeah. That was at about month two and a half or three and really kind of changed the virality of the site um, instead of going on there and not really being able to connect with people you didn't know because Tom was everybody's default friend. Totally. It worked, right? And and Tom was a sort of a online 24 hours a day kind of a guy, very into the product, listening to the users. Um, so it it it, um, it, it became... Much more than we ever would have guessed. next thing you know, Tom had 106 million friends and, you know, would walk around (laughs) cities with with people following him. But we were fortunate in that MySpace grew like a weed. And at the same time, into the summer of 2005, you had News Corp and Viacom both realized that they were losing audience fast and they wanted to change that. And so you exited Intermix for... Fairly large
1: figure. We're we're talking, you know, almost seven hundred million dollars. Uh, the company uh, was sold, and then from there you went on to become a VP at at, uh, at Knowledge, which, you know, I read you grew from forty million dollars to three hundred million dollars. And so, one of the questions that I had is, what are the skills that you think are required of companies going from forty to three hundred million? that maybe you don't necessarily, it doesn't seem as top of mind when you're just getting started. I, I know Crosscut does a lot of earlier stage, you know, seed series A deals, but, you know, going from 40 million to 300 million, what were some of the skills that you had to evolve in, and what do you think um, companies need to focus more on that are going from like that mid-market uh,
0: uh, range? It's a good question. So it, it, um, it depends on the business, but generally... Um, you need to do things that scale and you need to go direct whenever possible. So specifically in the case of ad knowledge, one of the reasons I, I went there and, and teamed up with Scotland, the founder, was Ad Knowledge was getting all their advertisers through a Yahoo feed. Okay? And basically targeting Ad Knowledge was a very big customer and partner of both MySpace and the other intermix properties. That's how the whole thing came together. That's how I I met Scott. So after selling to News Corp, as you noted, I had to spend six months there. I spent literally six months on the dot, which, by the way, I enjoyed. But I I knew my time to work at a company with 40,000 employees was not that moment Uh in time. At the same moment, I knew I did not want to start over from scratch again. Starting over from scratch, as I'll tell anyone that'll listen to me, is very difficult. You know it. I know it. It just is hard. Totally. And. At this point in kind of early 2006, it felt like that doesn't make sense. So, where can I go and skip a bunch of steps and hopefully create value? That was ad knowledge. And to your point, I knew that we could, by going direct to advertisers and cutting out Yahoo, that was 35 to 40% margin right there. And yes, that's going to require a lot more employees and sales force, but that's a very controllable thing. And if we were able to execute, that on, uh, execute on that correctly, we could build a pretty big business very quickly. So specifically in the case of AdKnowledge, to, to build a sales force like that, we needed actual offices. Okay. So we opened office in Australia, in London, in Chicago, New York City, where the base was previously in Los Angeles. The base was previously just in Kansas City. So we opened 10 offices around the world. Grew like a weed, and I know it's like a lifetime ago. And eventually, sold a majority of that business to to the private equity firms that still own most of it today.
1: And so, then in 2007 is really when you started your foray into venture capital, into investing startups. What's the origin story? How did you meet Rick and and Brian? like, how did you guys come together? I know you said that there was a moment where you were like, guys, like, there's not a big focus on LA. Like, we could be that team. What was you know the first time you ever met those guys, and what was it about them that you thought to yourself made you want to partner with them?
0: My first meeting with Brian, I happened to go to UCLA with his wife Elisa, and I lived in Pacific Palisades. They came in about two thousand two, two thousand three. My roommate, by the way, was Adam Goldenberg, who I referenced. Earlier, who's Fabletics and Savage. And my other roommate was Marco Alardi, who's been the CEO of Ad Knowledge for the last nine years. Wow. Very small world. So Brian and Elisa are walking in the front and looking at the house next door, which remember back to my real estate roots, I've loved real estate. I was in the, I had contemplated buying that house next door. So I was, even though it was rented, I was talking to the owner and because I knew Elisa and I actually knew Brian's older brother, Tall Paul Garrett, went to Stanford with my cousins. And so I, I Tall knew... Tall Paul Garrett. Tall Paul Garrett. He's a legend. <laughs> He's an amazing human being. I love Tall Paul. But, but Brian's <laughs> brother is Tall Paul, who is literally 6'9". Because and, and Brian played volleyball. did Brian did, played volleyball. And, and Tall, Tall Paul, Paul also... Play, he played basketball. <laughs> okay. And he played volleyball, but he played basketball. And so Tall Paul was very good friends with my cousins when I was in high school, not to get too detailed. Yeah, yeah. In Turlock, we would drive to Stanford... We would go to their fraternity, which is Fidel, which was in a bunch of insane athletes that would would party and stuff. But tall Paul always kind of looked out for me and my friends. Mm. And so I always had that in my head. Next thing you know, here's Brian and Elisa Garrett looking to possibly buy a house on, on our street. So anyway, I said, guys, here's exactly what I know about what the owner would take. This is exactly how I would do it. And it worked out great. So they ended up buying that house we started as friends, and we ended up throwing a Fourth of July party every year together for 19 years. Um, and we when I say th- these houses, by the way, were about like share a fence. Yeah, they were they were three and a half feet apart. Um, Brian and, and Lisa had dogs that would poop, and I'd say, "You guys, you gotta you know clean these the poop and everything." But and um, at
1: this point, were you just like, "Yeah, it was kind just, of retired." Like, no, no, no,
0: I was running Intermix. Uh-huh. No, remember this is this is when we're starting MySpace. Oh, okay, so this is 2000. I lived in that house during 9/11. Okay, so as a reference point, um, it was pretty close to right after 9/11. No, we're we're plugging away. I'm a plugging away entrepreneur. Brian had just started working at Palomar. Got it. Other than that, you know, it's it. it we're just friends, and and you know, where we go. Yeah. So if you fast forward through time, the exit happens. Brian, to some degree, I think I don't know what he said on your show, but but one of his aha moments was. When we we raised money in in late 2004 from Redpoint, from Jeff Yang at Redpoint, and I never even thought about pitching Palomar or any of the other LA funds. Honestly, it came down between Technology Crossover Ventures and Redpoint. I spent a lot of time going up to the Bay Area, and that's just what I did. And so Redpoint came in. It ended up being a really good investment for Redpoint because we sold to News Corp. Six or eight months later, and it it kind of because it was MySpace and it was cool and it was this high profile exit again coming out of the dot com doldrums. Yeah, it, it felt a lot bigger than you might think today. A, a seven hundred million dollar acquisition would feel, but but it was really big for Redpoint and Brian saw that and realized that Palomar was not that. Palomar was a Series A chip firm that was chasing deals all around the country, but you don't do things instantly. So he stayed there with Rick and they sort of plugged away. I then did the ad knowledge thing, which ad knowledge just happened very quickly. Uh-huh. Everything happened in hyperspeed because it was already a very well-run existing business that we just had to, again, circumvent Yahoo and and basically financially turn the business into a beast. So the next thing you know, it's 2007. I had been angel investing. So Mm. I had made, um, I invested in demand media, Rich Rosenblatt and Sean Colo, my good friends, who should be on your show if they haven't been. Okay, Um, But I was one of the first angel investors in demand media and six or seven other investments that some of them worked better than others, but that was going along. I realized very quickly that that wasn't going to scale, that I didn't want to end up as, as an entrepreneur that had a huge 40 or 50 company angel portfolio. Meanwhile, Rick and Brian are realizing that the platform at Palomar is not going to be a solution either. Okay. And so in late 2007, we come together and sit down and it it was like the A-team, you know, for lack of better. I mean, we're literally, we sat down and said, this is an amazing opportunity. It's an amazing time. If you believe in Los Angeles, both what was there at the time and what was here at the time. And what we thought you know, was going to be created, that there wasn't a venture fund in this market that I knew from an entrepreneur's perspective had any sort of reputation or, or just a, a concept of a doors open policy that you would go in and pitch. I mean, there truthfully was nothing in all of Los Angeles. So it was a pretty greenfield opportunity that we said, we got to do this and we got to do it now. And now if you ask anyone
1: that's in LA or is a startup in or around LA, Crosscut is one of the first funds that comes to mind. You guys have been such a key part of the system, uh, but it wasn't always like that. What was raising your first fund like? And, you know, because it seems like every time you've kind of had to go up to raise money, it hasn't just been like a walk in the park. And so, um, you know, what was sort of once you decided to go full steam ahead with Brian and uh, with Rick, what was the first couple of years like? Did you immediately think to yourself, "Oh man, this is going to be a huge success," or was there a time early on where you're like, "God damn it, like what what am I going to do?" Or w- was there ever any question that this was going to be such like a staple of the LA ecosystem?
0: Yeah, it was not clear um, how everything was going to turn out at Crosscut. So, as you pointed out, fundraising is never easy. And it's not supposed to be, you know, I always think like it really isn't, it should be hard. And that's what, that's the barrier that, that makes it difficult. But in our particular case, because seed funds weren't a thing and LA, by the way, was, it was like when we were pitching bigger investors on investing in a fund, it was more like we were pitching Portland or Des Moines, honestly, like they would say, oh, LA, but can't we just don't all the good deals go to San Francisco anyway? And we would say, yes, eventually, but we're a seed fund. We're going to be in those deals early and bring them to those San Francisco funds. But that was that whole, this whole concept that's evolved with pre-seed and seed literally did not exist. So yes, very difficult fundraising cycle. Such small funds that I was actually running ad knowledge at that time. Brian was running a business called Style Saint. Right. And Rick was really full-time crosscut. And even then, Rick was wearing a couple other hats. I mean, these were very small funds, but we made 18 investments, including one of our literally first investments was Jason Nazar, um, <laughs> who's, you know, now kind of the mayor of LA Tech, but but worked out really well with DocStock. And, and we just had a great first fund. By the second fund, our breakthrough step function, and I, and I always share with entrepreneurs, like you have to look for ways to skip steps, whether it's in your just work career or whether it's in your business, right? Sometimes it can be a relationship, an introduction, a partnership. Yeah. In our particular case, it was Steve Case. So Steve Case, the founder of AOL, born and raised in Hawaii, went to the same high school as my wife, Sky. They both went to Punahou. And I had had a little bit of a relationship with him. I met him a couple times at these Punahou reunions And when we were getting ready to raise Crosscut 2, Brian and I were asked to do this Hawaii Executive Conference speech and about um, starting companies and about growing businesses and et cetera. Anyway, we incorporated Gene Case, which is Steve's wife. And we did the talk with Gene. Steve is a big supporter of Hawaii um, entrepreneurship, as you might guess. Through that, really cemented our relationship with Steve and got him to be the anchor in Crosscut 2 as well as the anchor and CrossCut 3 and beyond. And so that was a big breakthrough for, for not just CrossCut, but I think to some degree, LA Tech, right? Because once Steve put that amount of capital in a fund, we were then able to get access to a lot of the institutions that had backed Revolution, Steve's fund in Washington DC, And sort of the rest is history, as they say. Don't miss the next segment of Demo Day,
1: where Brett Brewer shares his three golden rules of business and entrepreneurship.
0: Peace, guys.